This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, 2022 A Space Oddity, sci-fi and fantasy tropes that don't work. Are you proud of that title? A little bit. Yeah. I feel like you should be. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, okay, um, so basically I recently read the most infuriating book. <laughs> I'm not going to name it. Um, I don't want to be, I, I genuinely don't want to be mean. I know this is going to be a book that's like loads of people's favourites, but it had so many things wrong with it that some of it is just, it's not going to land with me. And some of it is a case of, I genuinely think the author was being hateful. Right. Um, but I don't want to get into that. <laughs> However, it did do a few things that, um, well, okay, it committed many crimes, but one of the most annoying was a huge world-building issue. Right. So um, I think it's worth looking at some of those those things in isolation, not necessarily with the book with in the itself. Book. Um, right. <laughs> um, now, it actually has been a while since we've done one of these episodes. Um, and to once again clarify... This is an opinion piece. So um, in our opinion, and our opinions might actually not necessarily agree uh, (laughs) throughout the course of the episode, we never know. Um, These tropes don't work in pure storytelling forms. Um, Although some are also a bit squicky as well. Um, Now, as always with opinions, um, I think even whenever we kind of firmly believe something, we will almost always have one where we go, okay, but yeah, I feel like it kind of worked for that one. Um, And we are not saying, making any moral judgments or making any judgments about people who go, actually, I really like these tropes or I use these tropes. Um, We are putting forward how we feel based on our own experiences, based on, um, you know, the other things that we've read, etc. And as always, whenever it comes to any kind of opinion piece, we are always open to hearing new facts, other points of view, other perspectives, etc. So please take this episode with that in mind. It is not our intention to upset, to offend, um, or to kind of, as I said, cast moral judgment on anyone. Yeah. And don't panic. If you happen to have written a book with one of these tropes as a major issue, it's not the end of the world. Um, It doesn't mean, just because in their broad forms that we think they don't work, it doesn't mean they can't ever work. Yeah. Um, On the whole, what the problem is, is that the authors who use them have tended not to give the tropes and their inevitable fallout enough consideration. Um, They just need planning and a little bit of tweaking to make most of them work. Yes. Um, So we're going to have a hopefully light, frank discussion about why we think they don't work as they stand. Yes. Okay. So let's just dive straight in um, with the first one, uh, which is Born Sexy Yesterday. Yeah, this is one that's always made me quite uncomfortable. Um, yeah. It's usually a sci-fi thing, although you do find it in fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you have a character who is an alien, a different species, or an android who was literally just created or born. Uh, yeah. comes to full sexual maturity in just a couple of days or hours yeah. and suddenly her bewildered rescuer who sort of stood in as her parent is now uncomfortably attracted to her and she's really into him 
and it's almost always that way around it's nearly always a male rescuer and a female i was i'm two hours old kind of thing but now i'm ready for it yeah um now this is quite an interesting one because we do get sort of you get kind of some of this in mythology going back in that we have created you know i have created a a a person for you i've created a bride for you with the gods or things like that i brought a statue to life so um or even uh in the the mabinogian um we put all these flowers together and made it into a into a into a bride for you and things like that but this is very specifically when you have kind of a creation which literally starts out as a child maybe not necessarily in terms of physically but so sometimes it is physically uh, it might be in terms of um you know just sort of mentality or things like that and the role initially is that you have the rescuer or, or the the guy who is being a parental figure and then within a very short period of time it suddenly goes from we're being a parental figure to suddenly we're being uh, there's the kind of the sexual there's the sexual thing and oh i'm i'm an adult now um and you there are cases where this trope can be played where actually it's about saying well actually um sometimes teenage girls do develop you know actually very often teenage girls will develop crushes on uh sort of guys who who are older than them you know um figures of authority such as teachers or things like that uh let's kind of move away from the whole idea that he's been standing in as a sort of like a father figure usually um but we then start to get this trope which is oh no we're suddenly both kind of attracted to each other and yeah it it's a bit mm. it's not great i mean the problem is the implied power imbalance yeah so this character has never been away from her protector she's mm-hmm. had no chance to mature as herself and has kind of imprinted on him yeah um it doesn't necessarily mean that actually this is some this is a relationship that wouldn't eventually work the problem is when you dive straight in without her ever having time away and becoming her own person yeah then it looks a bit like grooming yeah um it does and it also i think and this is going to be a small niggle for me um it actually also removes or, or removes this idea of paternal figures in that men cannot be paternal father figures and we touched on this in a you know in a previous episode um and you know they might be able to show that for very very young kind of children or very small animals they might be able to be gentle um but they can't have any kind of relationship or or maintain those sorts of feelings for you know beyond a certain level and so this trope also brings out the idea of oh no no um we can't have these two people actually maintaining a sort of a parental sort of or or like a family kind of relationship uh, because now she's a full-grown woman which we've contrived to happen um and that just won't be believable or it won't be satisfying etc um that's just one small niggle out of very many other niggles (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this isn't, I mean, when you think about it, a super sexy two-day-old is just Mm. kind of, um, but this isn't to be confused with like an age gap romance thing, because I think there's a bigger conversation to be had about that, and I don't necessarily always think they're wrong. In fact, you know, if they're done correctly, I don't think they're wrong for the vast majority of the time, Um, but they have to be set up correctly. 
the big problem, and weirdly, Jane Austen touched on this, even though she mm. presumably wasn't writing about androids, um, <laughs> with Emma and the fact that you have Mr Knightley after, during his proposal saying, I held you as a baby, and it's kind of like, oh God, you've been there as kind of this big brother influence throughout her entire life. I mean, they know each other so well, he just walks into her house. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not saying she was groomed or anything but she's never really had a chance to think about anybody else that way i mean okay the whole thing with with frank and what have you but he's always been that huge influence i yeah. think jane austen wants us to look at it and go okay maybe this will even work out but isn't it a little bit dicey yeah i agree um and again it kind of depends on the interpretation that you want you could just say well it's just two people who've you know known each other a long time and therefore know each other intimately and have seen each other through the best and the worst um or you could say hang on a second we've kind of got a narrative here which is um have they actually had a chance to develop as people separate from one another particularly with one being significantly yeah significantly older than the other um you know and i think it, 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 it as you said it does come down to power imbalance yeah um anyway where this really doesn't work in my opinion is where the author blithe blithely contrives the situation not considering just how dicey it looks it's kind of like i want these two people together i don't necessarily want to go through all the jumping through all the hoops of them sort of rejecting each other then orbiting closer then rejecting each other again which would actually be quite natural for two people pushed into the same orbit Mm -hmm. um growing away as people growing back together as people all the stuff that actually kind of makes you think yeah maybe there really isn't anybody else for them This, this is this is the perfect person um and they just jump straight to the well it's you kind of thing like like goslings imprinting on their mother it that that's where it's dicey yeah Um, And I think one of the things is you've got to ask, why have you decided to make it happen that way? And, you know, when an author has actually really said, okay, no, but it happens this way very particularly because of the way a lot of things are structured, you know, actually this is all part and parcel um, and it all kind of ties in and there's a larger kind of reason for it. Um, Because they've put that much thought into it, you know you can get away with it i think you know yeah. uh I potentially mean, um but it's you've kind of got to say why has why is this a thing i think where i found it most disturbing and i really can't remember the name of the book now i think it's happened in a couple of them mm. is when it is an android it's a female android she looks and basically is presented as female with all female parts kind of thing mm-hmm. and she is literally only sort of two days old um and she herself doesn't think of it you know her childhood was 10 minutes long but to her that was years yeah kind of thing um the problem on top which sort of is on top of that is that she'll go for her creator or her creator's lab assistant or whatever someone who's been there since her basically what is works as her birth yeah and it's a case of well she was created to kind of serve as well so you've got the whole sort of uh, indentured servitude slavery type thing on top of the whole yeah there's a real imbalance of power here just anyway yeah um and (laughs) yeah and and like i think the problem is that you've you've got to sort of say okay if we if we kind of made that them you know if the justification is well it's okay because they're an android 
then you've kind of got to if that's the only line yeah you've kind of got to say why um now there are probably people out there who just go well i just like it because it's just meant to be fantasy or stuff like that um fine fine fill your boots Um, (laughs) yeah fine um i'm not I'm not saying, therefore, that's how you feel in real life or anything like, you know, as in, you know, for real life things. But I think for me, it, it on a very basic level, um, it's bad storytelling, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of lazy because you don't want to engage with the difficult bits of a relationship. Yeah. Um, and certainly it's not something that... Um, that, that works for me narratively. <laughs> I mean, I've seen examples where it does work and it works because the author has engaged with all the intricacies and issues that the whole thing ri- raises. So mm. um, you have the fast maturing species in um, in Voyager, Star Trek Voyager with Kess. Kess's species comes to full maturity at a year old. Now yeah. for us, we'd be kind of like, oh, that's a toddler. But you look mm-hmm. at her and she's obviously not a toddler. Um, at a year old, she's old enough to leave her home and her family and decide she wants to spend the rest of her life travelling on Voyager. Mm. And not long after, she sets up a relationship with Neelix. And honestly, I think it must be her naivety because nobody else would get into a relationship with Neelix. It's insane. She's <laughs> uh, like the most annoying character. Um, but she's pretty cool. Um, on the other hand, she's not really... F- I mean, she's fully mature in the sense of, you know, she's sexually viable she's emotionally mature because she you know her emotional maturity has followed her physical maturity so it Mm. all sort of hangs together in that respect and her species only really lives eight or nine years at most yeah but that means that voyager which is stuck in the alpha quadrant for god knows how long um for years in fact means that at a certain point kes is reaching middle age yeah. And she's, or, you know, what we would consider our 30s. And she's like, I've seen so much of this world, of the galaxy, but I haven't seen very much of my own world. Yeah. And I've changed. I mean, if you think that we change our mindsets and things roughly every seven years, I mean, every seven years, the cells in your body renew. So you're literally a different person. Yeah. Um, and she just, she didn't have that range of experience and stuff and she made this snap decision to get on Voyager and they really sort of explore the fact that all of that plus the fact she's all she's got these developing psychic talents and no one like her around who can help her mm. starts fucking things up for her. Yeah. And I just think it's really interesting that they went in that direction with it. Yeah, and what's interesting then is that this is a story about someone who's actually aged rapidly. Um which in some ways can also is an interesting concept because it's not something that we you know we as humans kind of have to sort of face because we all age pretty much i know in terms of maturity and other things and actually to be honest we all age a little bit differently but we have sort of levels and hard and fast rules and things hard and fast we have structures in place um and for the most part we all kind of meet them uh, but we also then, you know, we we inhabit this planet with other species which also age differently. So it's okay, but what if, you know, we actually spoke to these people and you know, or spoke to these other animals and things like that? What if that was, you know, a, another kind of person? So conceptually, I think that that really works. Um, but the important thing there was that there was a whole story arc, you know, um, 
that went along with that story it wasn't just a contrived thing which is then okay well box ticked yeah finished you know um and it sort of happens with the cylons in battlestar galactica as well um Mm. but the sense of they're they come out of the tanks or the boxes or whatever you want to call them fully mature with everything they need to know um but they again they don't have that wealth of life experience because that does make a difference it does change you so uh, but i don't think battlestar galactica shies away from the fact that depending on where and when you land as a cylon and who you encounter and bear in mind they're against the entire human race Mm. um there's a there's a big knowledge gap there and that's something that needs to be addressed and that sometimes when things go wrong they go really really wrong for the the cylon type characters yeah it also works well in highlighting the idea of actually what makes someone mature because there's obviously physical maturity there's emotional maturity and we do have to think about hormones and things like that because obviously they do change the way that we process information and the and and all of that jazz um but also when you have that kind of narrative it does kind of bring into question this idea of actually um you might have someone who is a human being who is 50 years old who actually has very little life experience because they've always lived in a very tiny bubble yeah. And you might have someone who is 18 years old who has actually got a massive amount of life experience because they have been all over, they've done everything, you know. Um, and it's why you can get, you know, people who, who are very mature for their age, for example, or, or who suddenly find that they actually don't necessarily connect with people their own age. They have to connect with people who are older than them and stuff like that. Um, but it's because you know, it it kind of reminds us that there are different sort of levels of growing up. You know, there's emotional, there's physical, there's hormonal, um, there's experience and all that jazz. And that there is no simple kind of structure where by a certain age, everyone is this, by a certain age, everyone is this. Yeah, definitely. Um, And just to be bald about the whole thing, you know, the whole age of consent, whichever country you're in, um, is a line that's drawn in the sand because the line must be drawn somewhere. Yeah. And it needs to be a really realistic line, otherwise you're going to have people crossing it left, right and centre. And they yeah. do anyway. Yeah. Um, but you need a baseline to work from. But I would say that, you know, if you're a, you're a well-intentioned person, consent requires both emotional and physical maturity. The person needs to be able to give consent. Um, and the age of consent in the UK is 16. And the reason it's 16 is that girls very specifically girls mm-hmm. under the age of 16 are not considered able to give consent for sexual access to their bodies um and that's obviously changed a lot over the centuries yeah um i think it's younger in certain parts of germany i think it's actually 15 um mm. you get to certain states in america and it's 18 uh, yeah. or 17 and it, it really depends on where you are in the world um but a huge age gap at that age is is kind of an issue yeah shall we say yes um because also there's just there is a big difference between someone being 50 and someone being 60 yeah and someone being 12 and being 22 (laughs) yes yes definitely okay okay uh the magic system or science system adds nothing to the story oh i hate this If you've got a system whereby extraordinary things can be accomplished, then it's not enough to just tell the reader and never use it. Again, Mm. in my opinion. 
Um, if you can remove a magic system without it causing a major upheaval to your plot, then you don't need it. It's like the character who doesn't add anything. So yeah. why is it there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly because with sci-fi and with fantasy or things like that, you are already pushing people into a completely new world. So they have to engage a lot in order to kind of be able to follow everything. If you then introduce this whole kind of magic system, which then doesn't actually go anywhere, um, what you've just done is you've just cluttered, you've created clutter. Um, and you could say, oh, well, I'm just trying to world build. But when you're world building, you, you know, you're inviting someone to come and live in that world. So they've got to actually be living in it. It needs to fit together. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if you can just take your magic system out and it really doesn't change anything, then you don't need that magic system. So that is a huge yeah. storytelling failure. And it doesn't matter how great your magic system is. If it doesn't actually add anything, then it shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, so society's politics and religions should have evolved differently because your magic or science system is in place. So yeah. let's look at a couple of examples where it does actually work, even if you don't like the examples. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, for example, Star Wars, the presence of the force influences the Jedi mindset and way of life. It's considered an ancient religion yeah. and philosophy. Uh, by extension, the politics of the entire galaxy are affected because whoever they throw in with, they can sway, you know, the, if the Jedi are on your side, then it can, or the Sith are on your side, or the Sith take over, um, it can sway the fate of entire planets. So it absolutely needs to be there because it causes this huge amount of upheaval if it's not there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Harry Potter. Um, magic is essential to deal with Voldemort within the story. It's also, you know, the whole platform for which the story relies on. <laughs> yeah, if you take the magic out, then it's just a school story. Yes. Um, and, it, yeah, it obviously kind of becomes something else entirely. <laughs> yeah. And then there is the film Gattaca, which I believe is... I want to say it's an early 2000s film, but it might actually be 90s. Um, mm -hmm. But basically the premise is the entire society is set up so that parents can genetically engineer their children to give them a head start in life. So you can mm -hmm. you can make your genes throw true to their absolute optimum potential. And yeah. Add in a little bit of, you know, special source. And some parents are choosing to have their children the natural way, you know, just conceive and let genetic lottery throw the dice kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and basically then you you skip ahead sort of 20 years following the main character and the main character who was a natural birth child mm -hmm. is working as a janitor even though he's got a lot of potential because now people are selecting against non-engineered children for yeah. jobs and things so they can only non-engineered children can only get jobs as menial labor because they're considered health risks yeah um and then of course you know from that you start to build a, a class system essentially yeah, it's absolutely a class system yeah and the whole story is about somebody bucking that genetic lottery class system it's a really good film mm. um but yeah uh, if you took if you took that premise out then the entire story collapses so it clearly needs to be there yeah it's the same with my hero academia um, the story, the, the series is actually meant to be set very far into the future of humanity. And it's basically a story where human beings started to develop powers, which were called quirks. 
Um, and now the entirety of society is kind of revolves around that in that you have these heroes and you have villains, essentially. Yeah. Uh, where uh, people use that people who use their quirks to kind of to do the wrong are defeated by government officials who are hired um, or part of agencies or stuff like that who basically help citizens um, and etc. You can't remove that then from the whole you know from 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 the story you can't just say well we're just going to remove that system because then there is absolutely no story at all yeah. it completely relies on that yeah absolutely um so I, what i've noticed recently shall we say alternate mm-hmm. history seems to be the worst offender here mm. um i think people think that choosing a historical setting and then just changing one thing is a soft option they don't have to do too much world building but actually it's much easier to say this is going to be accurate history and I'm going to add something rather than go this is alternate history this one pivot thing didn't happen Uh, because you have to do more world building Mm. Um, it's not enough to just try and substitute something because you cannot have a one-to-one event substitution it affects so many different things Mm. Um, so if you removed the industrial revolution and replaced it with a magic revolution Mm -hmm. it's not enough um that one substitution would and should change everything. Historical events would fall out differently. Poetry would change. Mindsets would be altered. The mm-hmm. language you speak might not be the same language. Yeah. So um, doing this... that and just changing that one thing and saying magical revolution, and then literally your story is telling the same history of the British Empire in that respect. Yeah. Is at best lazy. At worst, it's incredibly contrived. Yeah, I think a really good example of someone who actually did this right was with Veronica Roth's uh, Chosen Ones. Yeah. Where we went to an alternative world. Um, And uh, again, you see this idea of, okay, well, if magic is sort of more commonplace or whether when certain structures come in place, then other things are not going to be developed. Um, And I mean, it's something I also did with obviously the Hamashia cycle and stuff like that is that in terms of where they are, um, kind of if we sort of put them in, a, in an equivalent uh, people might go oh well it's medieval because they've all got swords and stuff like that it's not um, they are actually very much more in a sort of a renaissance a late renaissance sort of period um, they just haven't developed guns or anything like that because they why would you when you why have would you? they can... have yeah they have mages <laughs> Yeah, it's very much a Tamora Pierce's total type books whereby mm. you have magic and magic is something that is quite expensive to pay for. So yes, some things, for example, um, weaving and pottery and food growing and stuff, mm-hmm. you, could be, you can make them easier with magic if you can afford it. If not, you have to do it like the Shanks pony way and bend your mm. back and work hard. Um, and there are some things that magic can accomplish that other things can't. Once again, why would you bother to to create guns when you have mages who can literally throw raw energy at you? Yeah. It's like, you're going to invest your money in finding ways of defending against that. You're not going to come up with guns. Yeah. Now, what you can do is you can always say, okay, all right, well, we have a system where some people have magic and some people don't. In which case you might say, yeah, actually, there are people who are going to invest a lot in creating things like guns and stuff like that because they want to be on even footing with you know they want to have something with the people against the people who have magic yeah you know 
So but it's like the magic should absolutely add something. So the yeah. new spangled science system should add something that cannot be taken away. Yeah, absolutely, completely agree. <laughs> um, and yeah, it is. I think it is a form of lazy writing. Um, it's also kind of a form of sort of inexperience. So I do feel like it's something that a lot of people can fall into, particularly if they've if they've only just started or if they're looking back at one of their earlier works or things like that, or even if they're just not quite used to creating a sort of a big kind of magic system or things like that. You know, yeah. it's very easy to fall into um, because we kind of just go, oh yeah, like this is just a typical back sort of background without thinking about actually no when you're creating a world it isn't just you know um uh, like on a stage where you just roll down a painted image um and it's just there to kind of to highlight the action which is happening in front um you are actually creating a three-dimensional world um it has to work it has to fit you need to think about how they interact with one another yeah Okay, our next one, the body swap slash evil twin. Um, <laughs> this is one I absolutely hate. I, um, uh, and I hate it for probably not the reason everyone expects. Um, it can sometimes work, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, most and of the sometimes time, it's I, very funny. Yeah, most of the time <laughs> I find it doesn't work. Basically, the hero gets body swapped with the villain, allowing the villain to do whatever she wants while disguised as the hero. So, for example, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 4, Faith and Bo Buffy end up swapping bodies and Faith yeah. immediately sets up um, sort of fucking up Buffy's life. Yeah. Um, I mean, this often includes messing with the hero's friends, sleeping with her boyfriend. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's a male swap, occasionally a female to male swap. Much more rarely, but occasionally. Yeah. Um, or a bad twin that no one has mentioned, which I find incredibly contrived. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it's a popular thing in telenovelas and stuff yeah. like that, you know. Dr. Um, Drake Ramore. Yeah. <laughs> evil twin, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the problem is that you're basically trying to convince the audience that no one noticed, <laughs> especially with the... And this is the one where I'm, again, and we mentioned this in the past in another episode um, in um, uh, Jane the Virgin, where this happened, where basically uh, twin sisters that kind of swapped places. Um, uh, one of them didn't want to, I should say. They were sort of drugged. Um, and they, and the the evil twin slept with um, the other one's um, ex or boyfriend or, or thing like that um, and it was never really addressed and um, they did kind of say oh well actually you know that felt different uh, something was was a bit different there but you are you Jules makes a point you know uh, when she observes uh, really no one notices no one no one during so what you're saying is as long as it's sex the bloke's fine with it yeah and it's like there's there's a whole thing we've unpacked this before so we won't go into it but yeah um, there's that whole thing there. Um, the reason I hate this is because it makes the narrative tedious. Yeah. Um, it's especially tedious if you tell the audience that's what's happened because we mm. know the villain is going to act out of spite. They're not going to do anything sensible with this sudden reverse yeah. of fortunes. They're just going to do revenge, petty revenge stuff. Um, so everything that goes on is utterly predictable and it's just annoying. It kills tension and it just makes the reader or viewer really stressed. Yeah. Now, there are ways that it can work. Um, 
and that like particularly it can be played for comedy um you can also kind of create narratives where it's actually about understanding two people so it's not necessarily about a villain or something like that it's just a kind of well they're each villains to each other's stories but then suddenly they're kind of put into another perspective or an, another role yeah. um one example that always makes me laugh is in the justice league series the the cartoon series there is a fantastic episode called the great brain Sw- the great great brain robbery yeah um where the flash and lex luthor swap minds and so the flash suddenly finds himself in this layer full of evil villains um in lex luthor's body and lex luthor finds himself up in the orbiting uh, justice tower you know um the the satellite with all of the heroes in the Flash's body. And the <laughs> there are lots of very funny things which occur because I don't think either, well, neither of them wanted it to happen. Yeah. Um, so obviously Lex Luthor really enjoys actually being in the Flash's body and that he's running around causing all sorts of chaos. Um, but there's this fantastic scene where he kind of goes to the bathroom and he just leans over at the mirror. He just goes, Lex, we're having a difficult day. And then he looks up, he goes, hmm, well, at the very least, I can find out who the Flash's secret identity is. And he takes off the mask and stares at himself. And there's this pause and he goes, I have no idea who this man is. <laughs> and it's like, it was perfect. Because <laughs> it was like, yeah, he would do that. And then go, this this person means absolutely nothing to me. What? <laughs> it's, I don't know his secret identity. I don't know who this is. Um, and then meanwhile it's kind of you get all of the comedy of the flash desperately trying to pretend to be lex luthor um and again there's he does this in really silly ways in that lex's girlfriend is suddenly like really attentive with him um and she seems to actually prefer the flash version of luthor because he's not a dick um but they just sprinkled in this kind of this humor of of him sort of he went to hide in the bathroom to try and get hold of the um the justice league and wasn't able to do it so he comes out of the stall and he meets one of the other heroes and they have a little chat and then he walks out and the and sorry the other villains and the villains like uh aren't you gonna wash your hands and flash just stares at him and just goes no because i'm evil (laughs) and walks out and I thought, yeah, this is a, this is actually a fun and interesting and unexpected way of doing the evil the evil body swap. Yeah, um, one where it's kind of a body swap, but it's more like a body split. Mm-hmm. Um, the '90s film Virtual Sexuality, which I'm sure has some dated passages out, mm. but is still a very funny way of looking at how teen girls can understand teen boys and vice versa. Yeah, um, it follows the main character Justine who's 17 and is kind of a, in a real flap about the fact that A, she hasn't passed a driving test and B, she hasn't lost her virginity yet and everybody in yeah. her class must have lost their virginity. Um, she goes off to a science fair with her friend who is this, is in her head, is this nerdy little guy. But, you know, mm-hmm. she's quite fond of him. She just doesn't see him as boyfriend potential. He's yeah. always had this real crush for her, um, which is very sweet. And she goes off to this this science thing because she's trying to catch up with the bloke she does fancy who she thinks yeah i want to lose my virginity with him Mm -hmm. she goes into one machine and she starts it's it's a machine that's supposed to show you how you can look if you change aspects of your body um, with a view to sort of you know surgery or whatever anyway 
um, she mucks around and actually makes a perfect man for herself who is played by Paul Bettany <laughs> um, with a really bad fake tan it's got to be said <laughs> and then there's a massive power surge uh, the machine sort of blows up or you know smoke pours from it she staggers out and then the Paul Bettany character staggers out as well believing he's Justine um, and ah. she's kind of duplicated a male version of herself because it's Justine in Paul Bettany's body kind of right. thing <laughs> um, oh, God. he goes off and finds the friend that he went to the science fair with and he's kind of has difficulty convincing him that in fact it is actually Justine mm-hmm. this poor this poor little dude sort of like okay well I guess you better stay with me he's got bunk beds in his room yeah and um he's in the top bunk he's got this Paul Bettany person in the I can't remember the character's name it's really annoying Justine in the male body in the bottom bunk and there's all this sort of really uncomfortable I mean she's asking him very frank questions about his penis and stuff and he's kind of like I don't want to tell you you're the girl of it's very very funny and obviously it has there's an, uh, uh, the male Justine now is kind of subject of intellectual property and has Mm. to be caught because they need to be able to duplicate this because imagine if they could just make any body for anyone they wanted kind of thing yeah Um, and her matrix is becoming unstable as well so it's an issue they need to reunite the two of them Mm -hmm. but what happens is at the end which i really loved because justine develops a crush on her male counterpart as well just to make it really really shakespearean yeah and eventually they manage to get everything solved and everything back together but the male justine remembers everything she learned from being a bloke she's still very much a woman kind of thing Mm -hmm. but she really got a a first person view of what it was like to be a teenage boy and how sometimes girls can be a bit cruel without realizing they're even being cruel yeah and that all the things that you worry about as a girl well there's a there's an opposite number of that worry as a boy it's actually Mm. really intelligently done and i liked that particular iteration of this trope (laughs) that's that's actually really interesting i haven't seen it so um i can't comment on it but it's worth watching but yeah that is that's an interesting way of kind of doing it and i don't mind to be honest body swap things like that can also be funny but again it's it's about how it's done and why it's done um yeah i mean on the surface it's okay (laughs) i don't i don't think it was a complete failure with buffy the vampire slayer i think there were just certain things that should have been addressed like the fact you know riley wasn't able to give consent for example Um, yeah but it's an interesting way of exploring the fact that faith believes she's a villain and she'd actually quite like to be the hero yeah and you get to see Buffy's resilience and her ingenuity and able to get herself out of the situation. All of that was great. It was just the, the sex thing was kind of like, why? Why did you? I mean, it's the thing you do because you want to hurt her. But at the same time, nobody considered him in that situation at all. Yeah. And I wonder whether actually there was any conversation about that afterwards. And we, we've talked about that, so we're not going to get into it yeah. at the moment now. Um so yeah, I think it can be interesting as a way of sort of actually looking at identity, also gender and things like that. Um, it can also be used for for comedy and and things along those lines. Um, but it, if it's not kind of done properly, it can just be quite tedious um, and annoying, to be honest. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, another trope, brain jacked or possessed. Um, <laughs> this is a bit of a, I don't know, I mean it's a much loved trope in sci-fi, fantasy and horror. Yeah. And on the surface it's okay, but it falls down when the author doesn't have the possessed character account for the actions of their body. Which seems really unfair because presumably if they weren't in control then it wasn't their fault. Mm. But I think the trouble is that the collateral damage, the fallout that happens afterwards is something that is left to that character to clean up and you have to do it even if it's not fair. Yeah. So, I, I mean... Mm. Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. I. The thing is that, yes, I'm, in, I'm kind of in two minds about that. Um, certainly, I think what happens is that it as a trope it 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 should raise this whole kind of conversation it should raise this whole sort of thing um and if that's not done it feels very very unsatisfying um and you're absolutely right it's not um you know it's this raises about this conversation of what is fair what isn't fair you know culpability um and all that jazz and and we can turn around and say okay but we know that it wasn't this character but they still have to deal with the fallout of it yeah. and it's not about what's fair or what isn't fair it's about the kind of the reality that follows on from that yeah um so a sci-fi sort of example because it's sci-fi within a sort of paranormal type book um mm-hmm is Libba Bray's Diviners series, um, which is fantastic, and I think I've recommended it, and I absolutely do recommend it. Uh, one issue that I had is that a nascent love triangle is settled by having one of the male characters attempt to sexually assault the girl in question. Mm. Um, he's a sort of Frankenstein's monster, Jekyll and Hyde type character, but hot, obviously, mm-hmm. who is super strong and resilient when he's on his serum, but also given to what is basically roid rage. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. And the uncontrollable desire to mate kind of thing. And at one time he has so much of this stuff. And it's not his fault that he has it. It's he's given it by this scientific institute. And he just goes on this complete rampage where he runs across the campus. And he, he cannot get it into his head that she doesn't... You know, she's not actually not amenable to his advances. But she doesn't want it like this. And he just doesn't... He won't stop when she's telling him to. And she's tiny by comparison. So it's horrific. Um, she does, It doesn't actually manage to, but at the same time, it's awful. He yeah. feels terrible when he's back, when he comes back down. And it stops him because he's the only one of the diviners who doesn't have some sort of psychic power. He was just kind of, he's kind of like part man, part machine kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's his ability. And it's clearly not his fault, but it's also kind of a character assassination, which I hate when you want to remove a romantic potential partner i hate it when the author just character assassinates them and says okay well she's obviously got to pick the good guy and it's like couldn't they both be good guys and she just chooses and someone ends up with a broken heart yeah that's you know that sucks but that works more for me um it's never fully explored how much he could control himself he feels awful afterwards and it it, it ruins their friendship quite rightly <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then he gets killed, leaving the coast clear for the fan favourite to get to the girl. So the way that was handled didn't work for me. Um, and yeah, it is the brain jackal being possessed type trope. Yeah. So, yes. That feels very uncomfortable for me. Um, yeah, I, I don't particularly like that. And I'm not actually sure what it 
provides but then again i haven't read the series so you know i can't really comment so i won't um the possession trope is interesting when it examines how much is the alien influence working on issues you've not dealt with um is that what gives it control or are you helplessly trapped inside your body watching as it rampages through everything that you love um are you traumatized afterwards etc one thing that interested me in the latest series of sandman was that you had this whole really grisly scene in the diner yeah um which i found incredibly hard to watch um it kind of bordered on well to be honest it was too much for me because uh, i i don't particularly like that kind of gore thing i'm not into horror of that kind of kind um and there was this whole sort of obviously there's two sort of separate perspectives where essentially um the the guy i've just forgotten his name um was saying well you know this is who you really are yeah you know um and dream then later on went no it isn't and um it kind of touched on that idea of you know everyone has intrusive thoughts everyone has you know the darkest aspects of themselves inside of themselves these are not actually who we are you know um and i think part of the reason that this trope kind of annoys me is that it sort of plays into this idea of um well deep down you are culpable because deep down you had those feelings deep down you wanted to do this deep down you wanted to do that otherwise your body would have never done it and i think that the... But thoughts are not action, words are not violence. You might yes. say something in the heat of the moment that you don't mean, that is a yeah. horrible thing to say, yeah. um, but, you know, it's not the same as... Uh, okay, there's a very simple test. I could say, you know, call somebody a really nasty name yeah. and then on a separate occasion hit them with a piece of... <laughs> hit them with the, with, the, with the car iron. And it's like, yeah. tell me which one actually did the most damage to you genuinely the one that's going to take you the longest to recover from yeah because <laughs> you have to be in a particular mindset to say well actually it was the nasty name yes um and it's just also that you know everybody has intrusive thoughts that's like a just a normal thing in life some people have more intrusive thoughts um some people have less and some people have intrusive thoughts uh, you know for things like throw your phone off the top of the eiffel tower or you might have intrusive thoughts that say um you know oh there's a cute hamster squeeze it squeeze it until you know just squeeze it into a tiny ball or kick this person or kick the dog or you know stuff like that um and this is not things that people want to do and you know that it's intrusive because it comes into your mind and you immediately go oh god no (laughs) you know it's horrifying um and whenever you get these narratives of like well actually deep down you know that's what you are um it really annoys me and it and i hate it and it kind of it, it also really gets to me because um i think it's lazy first of all 
Um, I think it, it's this massive oversimplification that you also see in term uh, that you also hear the kind of the doctrine from people who sort of spout the same sort of oh we're all just we're all just animals it's survival of the fittest it's the same kind of thing of deep down we're all just terrible people and that mean that excuses my behavior yeah. um so i don't really like it at all um and i just find the whole thing very uncomfortable because i don't think usually it is addressed and one of the big things that isn't addressed is the trauma that must follow the person who was possessed or who lost control of their of their bodies you know in whatever yeah. capacity whatever capacity um that's horrifying and yet so rarely do we actually get to sort of look at okay what must it be like to literally lose control of yourself in that way um and either be conscious of it or not be conscious of it and not be able to have a choice and then have to sort of be left in the wreckage of that yeah i mean i think it could potentially be an interesting way of exploring certain issues and i certainly used it that way myself so i'm mm -hmm. not to be a complete hypocrite here it is a no. trope i have used yeah um but it shouldn't be used as a contrived way of making something happen in the plot and then be shrugged off with no exploration i think is the final word on this one yeah absolutely and everyone's going to have different mileage on this you know um it's a trope that's that's used a lot so we will all have examples and as jill said she's used it we'll all have examples where we say actually this worked for me or this worked for the stories um i know that it's a trope that i personally don't particularly like but which i can sort of see done well in other stories and which i might even you know like with jules's stuff i'm fine happy no problem yeah. I mean, with that to be at honest, all <laughs> if you've used a brainwashing or conditioning trope at all then you've used the possession trope yes um and you know so in that way i've also done that uh, particularly <laughs> with with zachary you know at the end of the second book but um, nobody actually thinks you haven't like then really delved into someone's trauma madeline no one would ever accuse you of that, so. <laughs> yes <laughs> okay so moving on to the next one uh, the main character with no experience is better than the experts man do i hate this one y yeah um now obviously you get massive um offenders with this throughout pretty much a lot of superhero stuff um but uh yeah it basically involves the main character um who spent their whole life on a farm um or just doing something else and then they pick up the special sword and suddenly they are a master swordsman um or they're just or they they pick up this one thing and suddenly it, that's it they've got it all and I don't mind it if, okay, they've picked it up and actually they have a natural talent for it or something like that. Um, but it's when immediately they are just better than everybody else who's been doing it for years. Yeah, or decades even. Or I mean, decades, yeah. I mean, guilty examples include The Force Rises. I love Rey and the fact that she can use a bow staff effectively would suggest mm. that she wouldn't be terrible if she picked up a lightsaber. But yeah. she should not have really been able to win a fight against Kylo Ren, who's been training with a lightsaber and the Force together for his entire life. Mm. Yeah. Um, the Sword of Truth series, where Richard Rahl is a... He's not even Richard Rahl at the time. I can't remember his his commoner name. Um, he's basically a, basically a woodland guide. And suddenly mm. he gets the Sword of Truth. He never, ever learns to use the sword. Never. 
Just, mm. And okay, the implication is the sword is using him as well, but it doesn't work. Um, and then Sarah J Mass's Throne of Glass series, and it's not so much the sword or the fighting or anything because she is the world's greatest assassin, even though she never kills anyone. It's the fact that she walks into a room and over hardened political advisors, her plan is the best plan, even though it fails almost every single time. <laughs> it drives me nuts. Yeah. Um, it, And I, I totally get the whole sort of, okay, well, you kind of want your main character to bring something in. And sometimes it can work in that actually the main character's plan, even though they don't have experience, works because actually they need a new perspective um, or something like that. That can be a trope that works, but it it kind of has to be balanced. Um, you don't send a green soldier in to lead an army. You just don't do it. No, you don't. Um, you, <laughs> uh, you might say, okay, you might listen to what they have to advise and actually consider it carefully, you know, if they have a particular sort of a certain insight that might actually be useful like oh well i actually have grown up in this area my whole life so even though i'm not a soldier i can tell you about some of the some of the local areas like the sink pits over here or whatever you know they might have an insight in that regard but yeah you've kind of got to sort of balance things a tiny bit you're basically cheating your reader i mean it's fine to have the character have a lucky escape it's mm -hmm. you know or just go sort of like oh god i'm gonna die and it looks like they're gonna die and they pick up a rock and somehow they manage to throw it exactly the right way so it's it's luck it's not skill um yeah. it's far more satisfying to have them freeze in terror and get a hail mary rescue at the last minute from someone who is actually good with a sword yeah um, and it's all right if they have natural talent as madeline has said but you have got to give them a training montage at some point if you want your audience to actually believe in them yeah absolutely and i would say this goes double for political skill Mm -hmm. um, because you can be an absolute mega brain but if you don't start your career in the thick or rather you don't start your career in the thick of it you learn from small deals it's the same with con artists no one goes straight into i'm going to i'm going to to, to rob a bank um yeah you start off with small cons yeah <laughs> so it would be an interesting story if you if you've decided you're just gonna have a character who just goes right straight to the big stuff yeah Basically, if you're starting them with something that big, it's kind of like Breaking Bad, where he went straight to, well, I guess I'm going to cook meth. And yeah. you need to have that character fall down a lot before they succeed. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, science is no match for common sense. Um, look, in some situations, that might be true. But when you're looking at an interdimensional portal opening and wiping out all of humanity, then really the scientists should be taking point on that one. <laughs> It's this, there's this, um, <laughs> I can't actually remember what it's called. It's got Bruce Willis in it, um, I think. And it, it basically involves, they have to drill something in space. Um, and uh, instead of basically teaching um, a bunch of astronauts how to, to kind of use the drill equipment and how to do it properly, um, they've got to basically teach all these kind of, these people who've learned to operate the machinery how to be astronauts in order to do it because it's like oh no it's salt of the earth you know they've got a feel for it they've got their whole lives and i'm like okay so what you're arguing is a certain level of experience here but realistically would it be how are they easier do is it, are you talking about that awful film armageddon where they have to divert a, a meteorite i think that's what it is yeah yeah it's it's bullshit I mean, I yeah. think it's probably a great adventure film, but it is crap in terms of plot. 
Um, yeah, it doesn't work. Um, look, a non-science character might well say something off the cuff that starts a scientist thinking, hang on, there's a scientific equivalent of that. Let me run the numbers. And mm. I've absolutely had that happen in the book I'm currently writing. As in, Megan says something, Amy goes, oh my God, what if? And that's yeah. fine. But that's not the same as, you know, something very that requires a very scientific physics-based solution happening. And Amy going, well, I've got nothing. And Megan stepping forward and going, ta-da! <laughs> you know, yeah. it would have worked. And like, it can sometimes, yeah, and it can sometimes be something as simple as also saying, you know, you have a character who's who's stuck with with like a problem and uh, someone else saying okay well maybe actually the problem is you're you're actually thinking about this you know too literally or or you need to think about this in terms of something else and they apply a common sense thing which triggers a sort of thought yeah or triggers it triggers a change um, i mean the idea that all scientists don't have common sense um, suggests that most people who aren't scientists maybe have an inferiority complex <laughs> um <laughs> And yeah, okay, there are many, many scientists who don't have common sense, but there are many scientists who have common sense and they're just smarter than you, so suck it up. Um, (laughs) But they're not smarter than you on everything. There's a good chance that uh, you get your local astrophysicist or whatever and then say, I want to know about doing a half-loop backstitching on rayon fabric. And they'll just look at you and go, what? And they probably should do because their speciality is not that. Um, yeah. And I suppose this feeds into if a scientist is a scientist, then all science is equal. Ergo, all science is my, is my, you know, domain. Yeah. And it's like a biologist is not going to approach a problem the same way as a physicist would, or a chemist, or yeah. even a biochemist. <laughs> there are subspecialities within each different domain. Yeah, and also if you if you you know if you, you said it is the whole kind of uh, I'm a. You know, I'm a doctor, Jim, not a etc. And I'm like, he's got a point. He's basically saying, he's, look, he's my got a point. You're speciality is that is absolutely not in his his wheelhouse. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, he, he okay. So he probably does the basic sciences, but that doesn't mean that he knows about X, Y, and Z. You know? Honestly, I would say if you don't like the fact that the problem you've created has a scientific solution, and you've very definitely written the story that way. Mm. then don't write that story. Write a different story where literally a common sense solution is the solution and you don't need to involve scientists. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's really, it really grates my cheese. I'm not, even, I'm not an academic. I'm not a great scientist or anything. But when I see that in there, it's kind of like, well, screw you. <laughs> Every single time. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. So, um... All right, the next one, and this is one that kind of grates us both, uh, definitely, is the pointless sacrifice. Yes. Um, And this is if your character can better serve your story by staying alive, then they should. Don't be lazy. Yeah. Um, Don't kill off a character automatically, you know, thinking that killing a character off automatically creates great emotional content for your readers. Um it's misguided and i think a lot of people have sort of seen things like game of thrones and thought ah well the kill count on that was very high so that must be you know people love it the whole shock of it and i'm like no there's got to be a reason behind it um because after a certain point it just starts to feel senseless and and silly yeah um don't expect your readers to give a shit if you have not set the story up so the sacrifice character is someone they care about or you know they know and love i'm thinking very particularly of that 
and it was an absolute low point and that's quite saying something for the series to be honest mm. um star trek discovery where all this time they've had uh, like a a cybernetic human on mm-hmm. the bridge Clearly she'd been in a terrible accident or we find out she'd been in a terrible accident accident, and everything had kind of been um, replaced by cybernetics. Mm -hmm. And she dies. She dies at the beginning of the episode, but they spend the entire episode in sort of like uh, a flashback about all the great times they had with her. They had spent two series since she's just been like a vague shot in the background. They decided to sacrifice a character for an emotional reaction without ever bothering to make us like her or care about her or know anything about her at all. And you can't do that. It's like, no, I'm not going to leap on board your magic roundabout there. I'm not going to care about her. You can't spend one episode telling me why she's great and how much she interacted with everybody. I don't believe you because you haven't spent the time doing it. Yeah. And the thing is that you can... You can create a, a thing where you have like a side character who then has an episode and they have a sacrifice and it does and you know and it does actually have an impact. They do that with um, uh, Next Generation, in that you've sort of had characters who've kind of been introduced before um, who suddenly have kind of a much more sort of central sort of or might have even just been introduced in that um, and their whole journey sort of actually you know throughout the episode means that their sacrifice at the end does actually hit hard because throughout the episode we have come to know them we have actually formed a relationship with them um but it's it's going to be yeah that has to have been developed it has to be be done in a very specific way i mean if you're thinking of like tasha yeah i didn't care about that either so oh no to be honest i wasn't actually thinking of tasha yeah um, though I feel like the way that they sort of did they did that because obviously I understand you know the actress had to leave and stuff like that um, I feel like the way they kind of did the follow-up of it was actually pretty good and that you sort of got a sense of okay well there were there were other things happening um, but actually also that sometimes you know you can actually be introduced to a character within an episode and not necessarily just in in uh, next generation now but uh, just in general and you know you can actually feel like you really connect with this character and then the character dies yeah. um, within an episode it can be done but there has been a whole thing where actually the, the relationship has been developed there and then at that you know within the time frame of that episode like for example with with Lal um, obviously she wasn't sacrificed but with Lal um, in uh, Data's Daughter yeah. in Next Generation. We only had her for one episode. Um, but it hit when she died. For me, I felt it was actually quite emotional. Yeah, because um, we were we were sort of connected to Data. Ergo, his suffering was important to us. Yeah, and even though he... The thing is, you could say, well, he didn't actually feel, but the whole there was a whole kind of thing there in that we'd seen the sort of this relationship developing and also the potential for it as well. So it can be done, but again, you've kind of got to put the effort into it and yeah. just sort of killing someone and saying well there we go and they were a background character and we've actually not really had any kind of relationship with them and then trying to create a relationship it just isn't going to fly yeah or sacrificing a main character just for shock value and it's like yeah. did that need to happen it probably didn't need to happen you could have done any number of things with that character that would have caused emotional trauma in your reader and you'd still have the character 
Yeah. Um, and sometimes it might be that you go, well, I've, I've actually kind of got to, to sort of, well, I need to get rid of this character. There is nothing wrong with by, of getting rid of a character by just sort of saying, and they went and retired. They lived happily ever after. You know, <laughs> something like that. Or you even, I've had enough, that. I'm leaving you. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> but as in a sense of, it's, it's a shock thing. It's kind of a, oh my God, I thought they'd always be there. Why are they... You know, something has happened that's caught. I mean, it depends. You can handle it so many different ways. Um, mm. Sacrifice should only happen if there's nothing more your character can do. Um, if it actually serves the plot, if it drives mm -hmm. the series going forward, and you know, if a character is getting in the way, then yes, you may need to kill them or you may need to retire them somehow. Yeah, and you can do that in ways that serve the plot. Say so it doesn't always have to be a big. This was a thing that happened in the, the book that I shall not name. Yeah. as well and it was a case of actually i'm glad it's happened because that character has been annoying the shit out of me and i'm glad yeah. they're dead which is not what you want someone to react to your main character dying to be no. like <laughs> agreed but also it didn't need to happen it was contrived yeah um there there are times when you uh like because of a tv series or something like that an actor has to go or something like that yeah where they will just sort of create things um and for, to be honest unless it's done very very well it will just feel kind of empty yes because yes, it definitely. hasn't been built up to um i might have been more forgiving of that star trek discovery episode if the rest of it hadn't been such bullshit so there is that <laughs> <laughs> you know, quite, I, I understand that there are demands on the actors when you watch series and things and sometimes someone has to go and the only way to do it is to kill them off which I get that, I really do yeah. but I think you can do it in a way that A, serves the story B, you know, if you haven't really been utilising that character you can't blame the actor for fucking off somewhere else, can you? No um, and it's just, if you've got a strong series then you can get away with one episode where you're kind of saying to the, to, to the viewer please just let me have this. I can't solve this any other way. And you were asking, you know, you're asking for mercy, essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, unless you're telling a tale of Pyrrhic victory, don't do a pointless sacrifice. Yes. Um, and I should also point out that there's a difference between a sacrifice being pointless in terms of how it, how it feels like for, you know, for the characters versus a sacrifice being pointless to what it does for the narrative. So for example, you can have a death which just feels senseless and pointless and you're like, well, hang on a second, but they had a whole thing going, you know. Um, it, it, and But that is actually part of the story of, well, this is about the senselessness of war. Or, um, for example, uh, in Game of Thrones, there are character deaths where you're like, hold on, if we looked at it narratively, that sorry, if we looked at it in terms of what we'd expect from this character, they'd be going off and going and doing this, but instead they've been killed suddenly. And as part of the larger narrative, it does something. It's not a senseless death for the larger story. It's a senseless death within the reality of the world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, our final trope, which we don't think, it, or at least I don't think works, um, the villain gets depowered if they change sides. Um, I think this is a lazy writing offence, to be honest. But um, Because basically, if they weren't a worthy opponent, then why would they get billing as the villain in the first place? Yeah. And I get that sometimes the villain is so beloved and such an iconic character that you kind of want them to be won over, certainly by yeah. the end of a series or something. I've totally felt like that too. 
and you want to fan serve and you want to have the villain hop allegiance but you cannot then randomly depower them because that's contrivance I'm in two minds about this because I see exactly kind of where you're coming from, particularly when it, it is done in a very contrived way. And weirdly enough, actually, this is sort of a grievance that a lot of people have for like video games as well. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I've just fought this person. Now they're my follower. And suddenly, hang on a second. They were just had all of that power and stuff like that. And now they <laughs> Yeah. What the hell is going on? Um, now, if it's done in a way where actually something about sort of the link that linked them with their villainy gave them a, a lot of power so for example let's say well they they were being you know they had an evil amulet which gave them a huge amount of power um but when that amulet was destroyed they've lost a lot of their power but it's still them you know you could have something like that um again i think it really does depend how you do it um i don't mind it if it's done in a certain way i think sometimes it can be done lazily um but I also think sometimes it can work in terms of the narrative of, you know, what happens to the villain? What does it? What does defeating them actually involve? Does defeating them actually involve destroying their powers, therefore yeah. leaving them so, in a vulnerable position, or etc.? Yeah, I mean, this sort of jumps onto the next point, which is um, basically how you can do it and make it work, because you absolutely can make it work, as you yeah. said. Um, Instead of focusing on the fact the villain must be depowered so they don't overshadow the hero, focus mm. on what the villain personally loses by changing sides. So let's say mm. they were a great military leader on one side and they change sides and suddenly they don't have all that heft behind them anymore. They don't have mm. the money, they don't have the politics, they don't have the arm of the empire or what have you. Yeah. Um, or you know the. Or they the, don't have the trust of the people. The trust. You don't, they don't have the am. They don't have the amulet. You know. Yeah. Um, they've changed sides, but perhaps only one or two people at the very top will willingly rely on them and everybody else is kind of a bit out to get them still because they've done a lot of harm yeah so you can do all that you can also kill them off you can have them change sides at a climactic moment and then kill them off it's a mm. bit of a cop-out but there are times it works so for at the, at the end of return of the jedi mm. um, luke is still convinced that there's good inside his father darth vader or anakin skywalker and and you know, Darth Vader has a moment where he's watching the em the Emperor torture his son to death because Luke won't change sides, and he chooses not to let it happen. He has a moment of "That's my son. Am I really going to stand here and watch this? I can be better than this." Mm. And considering that the the actor's face is covered with that utterly blank black mask, yeah. and there's nothing more to it, uh, he then gets hold of the em Emperor, takes hold. Uh, takes hold of him, lifts him up, um, and you have to assume that the force power, the force lightning, is rippling through Vader at that point and destroying him instead. Yeah, and Vader's already been weakened. He throws the Emperor off the bridge. For you know, Star Wars, they always have these random bridges without railings. It's a health and safety nightmare. <laughs> but anyway, it works in this occasion. Um, throws the Emperor down and defeats him. But he's not going to be fighting on the side of the rebels because. He's dying. Yeah. He's come back. The price for him coming back and proving Luke right is he dies. Mm. And even if he did come back and lived and came and worked with the rebels, no one would fucking trust him except maybe Luke. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's done too much harm. He hunted down the Jedi for decades. He killed a temple full of younglings. You know, he's yeah. not making friends. He, he's, he's trodden his path quite willingly. Yeah. 
absolutely and one could argue that it's not actually necessarily he went to the to you know he came back to the side of good it was that he wanted to protect his son yeah you know so it was a self-interested motive there somewhere yeah in in some respects Um, the the other thing you can do is you can have the villain make a very definite choice where they have to give up something that was giving them an advantage because that's the thing that is also making them lean towards being a villain yeah Um, i think you have to be a bit careful how you do it otherwise you end up with quite a binary black and white narrative Mm. but it can be an interesting thing yeah um it also like this is one of those things where it also kind of lets you say okay but what is it then to be a villain you know what is making them villainous um and what is and in retrospect what is making the hero strong because you could very well have a narrative where actually you know the reason actually the villain feels is sort of is now weaker than the rest of the sort of the group, you know, the heroes that they've joined, is that actually the hero, the villain has remained static for so long, whereas the the heroes have been improving consistently, gaining more skills. And so actually it's not that the, that the villain became weaker, it's that the heroes comparatively are just now that much stronger because they've continued to sort of push forward, which is how they defeated him. Um, so you can have that narrative as well, though you kind of have to be careful then of not falling into the, right, well, we just need a bigger boss and a bigger boss and a bigger boss and a bigger boss kind <laughs> yeah. of on from that, because it starts to get a bit silly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, in conclusion, have we ever used any of these tropes ourselves? Um, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'd be a complete hypocrite to say that I had not used some of these tropes. I'd like to say that I definitely haven't done Born Sexy yesterday. And I haven't done a magic system, science system that adds nothing to the story. Um, but the evil twin thing, yeah, I kind of did that. Yeah. Um, one thing I'll say is in I Hold the Tide, while you do get that, that's something that you don't get from the very beginning. So you're not irritated by the fact it's part of the mystery. <laughs> and it's very interesting that most people who read that book and tell me what they thought of it, um, don't actually see that bit coming. Mm. They might see other bits coming, and I can almost always tell how old someone is or what site, where they've come from on social media as to how they figure out other bits of the mystery, yeah. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> um, but most people don't see that particular part of the mystery coming. And I, because it's part of something that explores things like... Um, social classes which should have been defunct and old ways of thinking in fact even nice kind people can act in ways that are reprehensible and come back to bite them on the arse mm-hmm. i think it kind of works and it's not a case of oh they're, they're going around just trying to sleep with yeah. this person's boyfriend etc i don't touch that one yeah no i completely so. agree um it's i think it's a trope that's been used well and and demonstrates again the fact that it's not necessarily the tropes which are the issue yeah um no trope on its own is inherently necessarily bad um i think i'm sure that there'll be someone somewhere who'll be able to go what about this trope and i'll probably go (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, i just don't want to think about it um but yeah i would say i've probably mine i definitely know that i've used some of these um i would say that i i mean i've definitely used the brain jacked or the the possessed yeah i I would be very 
hypocritical if I said I didn't use that. I did absolutely use that and then the rest of the series happened. I mean, they don't get a, ha a proper happily ever after at the end of that book, at the end mm. of I Belong to the Earth, because of this. Because, not because other characters can't put it behind them, but because the character that is most wounded by it cannot get past it himself. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's a novella exploring the whole thing and then there's issues within the series where... Um, it's something for this character to get over. And he's never, ever going to completely be past it. But we absolutely explore his trauma. From... Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and yeah, I, again, it, I, I don't mind this trope. I just sometimes mind the way that it's done. So I've definitely used it. I've definitely used science as no much of common sense, but I've used it more in a way of, and sometimes rather than science, it's it's magic, because particularly in the Hamashia cycle and stuff like that, magic is kind of a stand in, it's this idea of it's technology, it's math, it's yeah. math, uh, you know, mathematics essentially and stuff like that, um, in that essentially you are using theory to be able to work things in, but but instead of using kind of literal tools, you're using magic instead. So you have to be quite smart to do it. So there, there have definitely been cases where it's actually been about sort of saying, no, the reason this isn't working is because you are overcomplicating it because you're thinking about all these theories rather than saying, actually, sometimes there is a simple, swift solution. And sometimes actually you kind of need to move on instinct because um, maybe this isn't all about theory maybe this is about sort of you know what you can do naturally as a person you know um and i think with that the way i was leaning towards it again is a little bit like music um and with the way that rufus uses sort of magic is that he's a natural he just naturally understands it he's interested in the theory but he kind of he he can just put it all together very quickly in his head because it's instinctual for him um, yeah. So it's a little bit like the difference between someone picking up a piece of paper and writing out music notation and thinking about it in terms of patterns, in terms of, um, you know, uh, sort of themes and stuff like that. And someone else who just off the top of their head just comes out with a song, um, you know, on their own because it's all sort of happening inside of them, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know... I think that, you know, I might have, have toyed with sort of the pointless sacrifice. Maybe, you know, in some of my writing, uh, the villain gets depowered, you know, stuff like that. I feel like I've probably toyed with a lot of these, um, with the exception of the, the born sexy yesterday, which I don't think I've done. Um, and I, I hope that I've not done the magic system uh, science system that adds nothing to the story though to be honest probably actually if I look back at some old work or something like that I will probably find that I have in some capacity um, yeah, well, or we're another not, we're not talking about your training wheels right yeah anyway we've overrun so I think we should wrap it up there <laughs> yes um before we go uh first of all um what do you guys think about these tropes? Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you have other examples? Um, let us know. Remember, you can get in contact with us via our Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Uh, before we go, obviously, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, you've got one for us today. Yes. Um, if you happen to have Kindle Unlimited, you can read these books in Kindle Unlimited, which is nice. Yay. But they're not ridiculously priced, if not, and... Um, they're also available on audiobook if you prefer that. 
Um, that's Hayley Edwards' Black Hat Bureau series. Uh, the first book I read, I've read the first book, I can't tell you about the rest of the series, but I really enjoyed the first one. It's called Black Hat White Witch, and it follows Rue, who is retired from the Black Hat Bureau. Mm -hmm. The Black Hat Bureau uses dark magic to hunt down monsters, um, which involves a lot of eating of hearts and things. Um, because dark magic is addictive, and something happens somewhere along the way to make her go, no, I'm going to go cold turkey on this. This is destroying me because eventually I will become a monster if I'm not already. Yeah. And so she tries to live quietly as a human, sort of selling herbal remedies and things from a shop. Um, but the past comes knocking for her because they need her particular talents to help track down the last serial killer that she ever caught. Somebody who is recreating his work, so they need her help. Um, ma you know, magic uses a kind of out, but she's kind of living as a human and not using magic at all. And every day right. is a real struggle for her. Um, she's, you know, about 150 years old, so she's not like a sprightly young thing, but she's also, you know, magic uses sort of age differently as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just really well done. It's a really interesting conversation about at what point do you actually become a monster and can you ever come back from that? Can you look mm. back at things and say, well, I'm not as bad as the people who did X, Y and Z, but I was yeah. well on the way to becoming them. Um, so it's really well written. It's very engaging. And I think I got through the book in one day. I was kind of like, oh, OK, okay. I'm, I guess I'm at the end now. I have to read something else. Um, so, yeah, I recommend that. It's it's really good. And it's an indie author. And it's always nice to support other indie authors of urban fantasy. Absolutely. OK, thank you very much for that recommendation. I'm going to have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.